Welcome to our second season of Shooting the Breeze. This time, we're casting our net wider. We're going to be talking to inspiring athletes, amazing coaches, and behind-the-scenes trailblazers from across the women's basketball landscape. As we start the run-up to another WNBL season and the FIBA Women's World Cup being held right here in Sydney, this is a great time to be a fan of Australian women's basketball. Don't forget to subscribe and be the first to know when we have more hoops goodness headed your way. Joining us on this episode of Shooting the Breeze is Jenna Misens and Darren Alley as we review the last three games of the Gliders Paralympic campaign, including the win over Algeria. We're also looking at the upcoming events for the team, including camps, tryouts, talent identification and the World Cup. Finally, we talk about the commercial challenges faced by the team and the sport that need to be addressed so the gliders can cement their legacy. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Today, it's our last review of the Paralympics. We'll look at the last three games that the gliders had and we'll also look forward and see what's on the horizon for the team. Joining us again... Jenna Misens and Darren Alley. Guys, welcome to the show again. Hey, Paul. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be again, Paul. My pleasure. Okay, so, look, let's talk about the last three games. I know that two of them had results that we weren't really hoping for, but I think there were positives to take out of that. From my point of view, I was seeing improvement within the team in terms of how they were gelling and how they were playing together as, as a group. From that point of view... I could see some real positives coming out of it. On the downside, I think, again, there were there were times where the team just wasn't quite in position, quite, wasn't quite in sync. There were a couple of times where I saw some passes go out and, and you could see that this is where somebody was supposed to be and they were just a little bit out of position. That being said, I think that's going to improve with more practice together as a team. Now, again, that's my point of view from not being an expert. So now I'll hand over to the experts and we can talk about those first two games against uh, GB in Canada. Yeah, you're right. There was, like the first two games, there was a lot of good moments. There were some good times when the team worked, when they had the good defense, the ball was moved. Uh, we, we took our time and had a good shot, but there's times when it just wasn't working. We weren't on the same page. A lot of effort out there. I think everyone is working really hard. It's just making sure we're all on the same page. You know, I think the, the scoreline kind of shows that in the last two games. We just, we let Great Britain, Canada just get too many points. And, you know, defensively, we have been pretty patchy over the whole the whole 10 days that we've been playing. And I think, you know, as Janice said, we really need to get all five players on the court at the same time, on the same page, consistently over the four quarters. And I think, you know, we have been a little bit patchy. We've had glimpses of some great stuff. To your point that we did let the GB in Canada get ahead was it seemed to me that in some of those instances where there was a big break, the team was was trying to force the shots to try and reduce the gap. So rather than taking that extra second or or using the clock a little bit better to try and have the extra bit of time to take the shot. Because again, the shots were going up. They were almost on target, but there were a lot of shots that were rimming out. And look, not everything's going to drop, but there's a point where if the shots continue to rim out, it points towards trying to force the shot maybe just a moment before it's fully baked and ready to go. Yeah, and you can see... I mean, that can come from the experience. You have to remember how many of the first time Paralympics and everyone is getting minutes. Everyone is out there giving it a go. But in terms of a, a team that's been there, done it before, 
you know, it's the ball reversal that goes in. It's not the first shot that goes in. You're reading the defense. You're taking a break. 24 seconds is a lot of time. And you really being able to use that time to get the best shot for the team really is something that comes with experience. And instead of just being rushed, we're down. We got to get the shot off right now is a panic state. And you're right. You can see that the shooting percentage, it doesn't work in a panic state. And just to add to what Jenna said, it, when teams put full court pressure on you and you take so long to get into our quarter court, so we may take close to eight seconds to get it over halfway, then another four seconds to get just into the quarter court and get set up, that doesn't give you long. It gives you another 12 seconds to try and get some ball reversal and get a good shot. And I think that's where we, because we didn't flow from the backcourt into our quarter court stuff, we took so much time, it gives us less options, less time to throw the ball around to get the shot we want. And sometimes we just, we took the, a good shot, but we could have taken a, a great shot if we had flipped it around a little bit more and had more time. And you're right, Jana, that I think it is an experience, not just an experience thing, but it's also a working as a unit thing, which is obviously going to be hard for a team that's not had enough opportunity to be able to work together and play together so that they just get to know each other's rhythms and how each person plays. Yeah, and I think too, it's everyone knowing how they can be a shooting threat. Everyone having the mentality, I am a shooting threat. The teams that are successful are the ones that there's six, you know, four, five, six players that are able to put the ball in the hole. If we're only relying on a couple players, that makes it really hard for the whole team to succeed. So it's everyone. When we get to the Algeria game, we saw that the game slowed down and we performed and it was much more consistent. But it's now when it's the tempo's higher and the teams are better, how do we get that consistency? And I think um, we also had people playing out of position because we didn't have, you know, two very strong athletes that couldn't go, um, that were usually playing a position that would be those extra scorers. We had to have people step into their roles and take more. And they haven't been used to doing that for a long time because they haven't had to. So that, to, to their credit, we had some of our, our lower pointers have to step into ball-carrying roles and be more aggressive shooting, which they haven't been used to doing in the past. So, yeah, that's a bit of a culture shock too when you're not used to taking on those roles. Yeah, I mean, there's a point that we discussed a few weeks back with relation to the Opals. One of the things that happens to a team is that if you are getting people playing out of position, that almost institutional memory of this is what this person's going to do, this is what that person's going to do, the visual cues that come with I'm recognising that person is in that position I know they're going to be in that other spot so that when the ball goes. And the person who's now filling their role isn't doing it instinctively because they haven't had enough time to get used to it. They're actually having to think and that just puts them, you know, just a moment behind which, and it's nobody's fault. It's just one of those things that comes with practice and getting to know each other's style of play and playing together. It does come down to experience. Yeah, a lot of times, you know, offense, you kind of think that you're you're all connected with the string. And when one person moves one way, the string, your teammates move in another way that you're connected, you know, that you can understand where the flow is. And there was a time watching the game on offense when one person moved it took us a second to go, okay, now what do I need to do? And it's that little bit of pause. You're not going to be able to grab the board and chuck it out and to get a quick outlet with your teammate because they're taking a minute to figure out where they need to go. And it's those seconds are going to have a half a seconds add up and put you behind the other team. 
but it's working together, getting more time together, getting games together, being here in Australia. Even without COVID, we have a hard time getting international games in, you know? So it's just, it's that time and now put it in COVID and the restrictions that we're having now. It makes it really hard. You can individually all be ready, but collectively, and it's a team sport. It has to be collectively together. Let's move on to the Algeria game. To me, that result was great. It was a good result. I think it's a result that the team needed to remind them that, hey, you know what? You are a good team and it does come together. The game seemed to be played at maybe one gear slower than the GB and Canada games were, which helped the team to get in their rhythm and be able to play the game that they wanted to play. It was an opportunity for the team to kind of get together and go, yeah, you know what? We can do this. I think the the way Algeria play compared to the other teams that we played in our pool is what they did with their defense. So Algeria went back into the half court and enabled us to get the ball up the floor quickly and flow into our stuff. And that's where we look really good compared to the pool games where they extended their defense into the full court and picked out some of our heights. So they picked out Amber, they picked out Cookie. So our high pointers have to work all the time. So they're not just working on defense, but they've got to work on offense to get in. Like They're constantly fighting pressure. And that's when fatigue gets in. And if you look at our scoring in the last quarters in the second half, it drops if you look at our stats. And that's because fatigue kicks yeah. in. And, you know, If you look at the stats across the, the games, Amber and Cookie were our highest point scorers. They were averaging you know, 14 or 16 points a game uh, between them. So that's 30 points a game. And when you're having to work non-stop for 40 minutes, like it takes its toll. And that's when we need those other people to chip in and pick up some of that scoring. Well, go ahead. With the Algeria game, though, we were able to stop the chairs. And, and you see um, in the pool play, the teams were scoring 20 points a quarter. And that, that's just that's 80 points a game. But versus Algeria, we were able to stop the chairs. They were shooting eight, 10 a quarter, and we were able to dictate to them on defense where they could take the ball. There's some great times you could see that the Australian defense had a solid line and then Algeria scrambling like we were scrambling in the previous games. And the slower pace also on offense, you saw that we were able to take our time. We're a confidence team. A lot more people were shooting the ball. The ball was going in. We had some great numbers across the board because everybody's getting time and everybody was a shooter in that game. That you're right, that slower um, gear allowed us to, to finally go, we got this. Yeah, and what you were saying about stopping the chairs, I think for me anyway, the most obvious example was towards the end of the game, there was a, a point where Australia put a full court press on Algeria and literally there was this line of chairs and they stopped Algeria from moving. Visually, it looked amazing to watch that fall into place. And the ability of the team to be able to get to that point when they were having issues with D in the previous games, I think was a real positive for them. I think it must have made the team feel really good. I think, like Jenna said earlier, you know, where we need to evolve as a team is we need to dictate defensively and we need to take control. Instead of what's happened in the pool games, we let the offense dictate. Instead of saying, no, this is where we want you to go and we're going to send you here. And like you said, I, I remember you, you know, that point that you brought up. There was eight players in that quarter court, just over halfway. Yeah. I remember the same point. And that's it. We told them where to go and we put them there. But we need to do that against the quicker and stronger teams. I mean, it's obviously a disappointing 
outcome for the team on one hand. But if we look just past just, you know, the pool rounds, if we look at what it's providing in terms of a, a foundation and a building point, it's actually been a good campaign if we're looking at the long term heading towards Worlds and Paris. Like I said, we've still got a relatively young group. You know, obviously we've got some older players. We don't know what they'll do and what decisions they'll make after this week and when they get home. But, you know, we should know soon enough. But there's not going to be much of a break when they get back. They've got the world qualifiers and they've also got, look at a selection group for the Com Games with a three-on-three. We'd be back into camp in late October. That's not far away. So it's not going to give the, the girls much time to put thought into having a break and deciding what they want to do because there's so much going on. So what's the schedule for the team starting to shape up like over the next, I don't know, three to four months, let's say? Well, I mean, the big thing is for us to evaluate where the gaps are and start filling those up quickly. Um, we have qualifiers at the end of March. So that's, again, going up against China and Japan to try to get, you know, I think right now it's two seeds for the World Cup at the end of the year. Um, so that's very quick. We do have um, our biggest thing is about our numbers and in terms of the depth. Um, we do have, and this is sort of long-term kind of pathways. It's not going to turn around in six months. Is there some women's development camps, you know, of really getting the word out there of people that are able to play wheelchair basketball, being classified to come to a camp at the AIS at the end of November to, to give it a go. Plus, we're developing the under-25s. That's longer term, but it's about getting more people in the sport that can be trained up to represent their country. But in the short term, it's figuring out or getting stronger, getting fitter, getting our shooting percentage up there by all the players. Some of this in terms of can we get together is going to be dictated by the government and situations right now. But what's on the calendar is qualifiers at the end of March, which is only six months away. And they're in Thailand. Okay, so qualifiers in March. So that means, as you were saying, Daz, it's looking like there'll be camps before the end of the, end of the year and there's development. So this is all really good, positive stuff. It's saying that we're a long-term view to look at what we can improve, looking for additional talent to create the depth that the team needs to be able to succeed longer term. We've got the camps coming up. There's the run-up to the world's. And obviously, we're going to start looking at uh, local competitions now. I think you've mentioned that Basketball New South Wales is looking to try and initiate a competition under the, the Waratah League umbrella. Is that correct? That's correct. And I think they're trying to have a couple weekend rounds before the end of the year. We'll see how that kind of shifts around. But yeah, this is the second year they're trying to get off. So adding that, that layer at the state level is something the states are starting to happen. And I suppose when we talk about qualifiers for worlds, obviously that you know we were lucky that that China have gone through to the medal to the medal rounds. You know now we're looking at you know for us to qualify, we're looking at Japan. We need to get ready because we're going to have to come up against them again to qualify for Dubai. There's a lot that needs to go into place after you know, our performance against Japan here. Uh, we'll be coming up against them in in March again to try and qualify for the worlds. Things need to happen quickly and we need to get right back on track and back into the gym. See, it seems to me from the outside that the wheelchair basketball campaign for the gliders going forward is pretty full on. There's a lot happening. The obvious question that flows on from that is uh, what sort of assistance or what's the organisation that builds around the gliders to be able to support them in this campaign? 
we need to have a, an approach across every state where there's consistency from whether it be buy-in from the state institutes of sport and there's a customised program with resources going to coaches so we can develop athletes in a way and they're getting the type of coaching uh, and, the, and the support in the daily training environment that they need. At the moment, we have an inconsistent approach across different states and we need to lock that down. But we need investment in that for that to happen. There's a majority of our athletes in the women's program that are in WA. So what have we got? There's six, Jenna, is there? Yes, six, six seven. There's um, that are on the national program, but there's yeah. other players there as well. Yeah. And they've got some development players that are coming through with it that obviously we'll be looking to, to try and fast track. But we need Victoria to get on board. We need that link through the state bodies as well so they can promote. At the moment, it's still not being promoted at a state level through you know Vic Basketball, Basketball New South Wales. There needs to be stronger messaging and stronger promotion through the state bodies as well. At the moment, it seems to be very much driven by the national body and the national program level, and we need more support across all states at a state body level. And I think that during these last games, talking to different people, that question of how do you classify for wheelchair basketball, the assumption that you have to be in a wheelchair to play wheelchair basketball is not correct. And it's one that I'm talking with people going, oh, I could do if I do that or if I, you know, we need players that aren't in wheelchairs all the time, you know, to play wheelchair basketball and getting that education piece out to the basketball associations, to the wheelchair sports associations, to the amputee associations, just to get everyone involved that has a type of disability that doesn't allow them to play able-bodied sports. They may be able to still represent their country in wheelchair basketball. And that's what's unique about wheelchair basketball is that we need that diversity with the classifications. We work all together um, with all the different from paraplegics, spinal bifida, all the way to amputees, club foot. We need that diversity to play the game. One of the things that we've discussed, Jana, and it took me a little bit by surprise that somebody with a fused ankle would qualify to play wheelchair basketball. Having looked at that Australian story a few weeks ago about Luke Longley, people will look at Luke Longley and go, no way, this guy wouldn't, he wouldn't qualify for wheelchair basketball, but in fact, that does qualify you. So I think that's a really strong message that needs to get out there. The potential pool of players for wheelchair basketball is so much wider than what people really understand. It's breaking the stigma though as well. I think there's some people that may say, well, I don't have a disability. I don't need to go and play wheelchair basketball. It's the stigma behind saying that you have a disability or thinking that you have a disability. I think we need to break that as well. Because some people may say, I've just had a, two knee reconstructions or two hip replacements and you know, fused ankle and saying, well, I don't qualify, I'm, I don't have a disability. I think we need to break that as well. And I guess seeing wheelchair basketball as another sport, you know, and that's what some of the wheelchair sports inclusion um, bodies do around the country, having tri days where somebody can come and have their sister. Maybe one person will have a disability. It's an inclusive sport that you can play with able-bodied or um, wheelchair. And add that to it. If you like basketball, how about getting a chair? How much quicker are you going to go down the court if you're in a wheelchair basketball, you know, and then challenge yourself to sit and shoot the ball. You know, you think you're good at standing it, sit down and shoot your three-pointer, you know, and have fun and move the ball around. See it as another sport to play, even as an able-bodied person. About the consistency in relation to wheelchair basketball across all the associations, how significant are the differences across the states? Because obviously this is one of the areas where if we're trying to build a stronger, deeper 
wheelchair basketball community, the engagement at the state level is critical to success. Some associations, some state bodies will have a disability and inclusion program worker, but it's what they spend their time on. So say, for example, in regards to the Kevin Scheme Cut, which is the state versus state level wheelchair basketball program that we have with my time when I was you know, working more with in the able-bodied stuff, you wouldn't hear anything about wheelchair basketball until three months out from the Kevin Coombs Cup when they had selection trials. It wasn't promoted. There weren't come try days. And I'm not sure if that's happening now, but that was six years ago now that I'm referring to. We're in the system. We're in the system. We're involved with Basketball Australia and the state bodies, and we don't see it promoted. So if we don't see it, what chance have anyone got that's not in, in the basketball fraternity and not touching base? So I think that in itself is an issue. I think within a disabled sport, you're in a space that there's some great stuff happening with like wheelchair sports, New South Wales ACT, the wheelies up in Queensland, that work which is inclusive, getting everyone to come play and come try all the variety of um, disabled sports. And then you have the basketball associations and how strong that relationship is kind of the determine and, and who's responsible for what is cloudy at times. Um, so it does make it hard to deliver it and get the outcomes that everyone wants. So it's an odd space because it isn't fully responsible in the wheelchair, in the basketball associations. And then it's also sort of responsible in the inclusive space. It makes it kind of times clunky and deliverability, who's responsible um, for it can get lost. So it's almost like a meeting of the minds needs to happen across state level to take a concrete step towards let's move forward with this. But obviously, that's also going to run into the limitations that every sports body has, which is funding and the funding ability to be able to support these initiatives. What needs to happen in this area to be able to try and support the wheelchair athletes? It needs to become part of the core business or the organisations. The problem with diversity and inclusion programs, and you know, I found this with my time even at the AFL, money only gets invested when there's funding that comes along with it. Say, for example, now, you know, the women in sport grants that are going out there, the Indigenous grants, there's not as many disability grants out there. And people are applying for money and using that money to subsidise a worker to help drive these programs. So they might get, you know, some money from the women in sport grant, some money from Indigenous programs grant, and they have KPIs associated with that funding. So where the money comes from is where the time goes. We need to make sure that these programs are just a part of core business. It's not up to a specialist arm. It should be part of any development officer or any development coordinator's role. That It's a whole of sport. It's like whoever wants to play this game, regardless of your ability, where you come from, you can get access and we will help you find access. So this is something that Lee Gooding raised when we spoke to him. It's not about the gliders, it's about the rollers, but apparently Australian wheelchair basketball has the most successful basketball team the country has ever had. And when he told me, I got to be honest, I was shocked because I don't see that being championed or promoted anywhere. Well, gliders, you're right. They took silver in 2000, 2004, 2012, and a bronze in 2008. Huge step. We didn't qualify in um, Rio and then here. But in the last 20 years, that's three silvers and a bronze. And it's that's successful, you know. We're in rebuilding now, but it's almost that success 
did we ride that, create that success from work that was done previously? And then this hole, this massive hole happening right now is the result of a gap that started during that time, that development, but it is successful, but it, you can't just let success happen. You know, it takes investment, it takes hard work, and it has to keep happening for it to continue down the years. Especially if you want to be consistent. I think one of the things that we've noticed is that you tend to ride away in any successful program and then all of a sudden you realize that five of your starting group is going to retire and go oops and you've done no forecasting no planning no talent identification to fill those and just anticipate possibly what could happen and i think we really need to look at that because even in the men's program as well there's some older athletes that are going to go out the door and we need to we need to look at it especially from the girls side because we don't have the pool of athletes that the men's side have what's going to happen next and there'll be a review, obviously, when the crew get back from Japan about how we tackle this. I think we're at the pointy end right now, and uh, we need to put some really good strategies in place. And that's for players, but I think then coaches as well. Yeah, I think noting that the head coach was the same across two programs, we need a bigger pool of coaches, you know, and that's about getting the competitions at state level so our coaches can be developed up with in-game strategies. And so that when you know, national programs come up, they already have a number of games under their belt and a proven record out of wheelchair basketball. And that's an interesting point. How different is coaching able-bodied basketball to wheelchair basketball? Daz, this is your, I mean, you're being only two years in the program. Massive, um, massive difference. Like we were saying before, like the concepts are the same. You know what I mean? Like, say, for example, you know, you know you're talking about got to score more points than the other team. You talk about playing in the first eight seconds, second eight seconds, third eight But how you do that and execute that is so different to what able-bodied basketball. And from a point of saying, we're going to go and set an on-ball, so enable body basketball and say, you're going to run up and set an on-ball screen on that person on the wing. In wheelchair basketball, someone may lock me down in the corner and I can't even go up and set a screen because I've got someone on my wheel trying to get me there and that may take me you know, six seconds to get up there or I may not even be able to get up there to set an on-ball screen. So you've got to look at, well, how do we get that person up there to set an on-ball screen? You know, all the different details in wheel position and who do we want to go up there? And then the detail that has to go in for the execution of the technical stuff in the chair is on another level. With wheelchair basketball, you've got to think, well, how can we help them do that? If we want to set an on-ball screen or transition, we want to bust out in transition and, and, and cross and all these different things. How do we do that? And where do our chairs need to be? How much space do we need? You know, Who do we need to work with to get there? Angles, agility, who's got agility in the chair? All these considerations that need to go in to coaching the game. It's just next level. And I think it's drawn on the expertise of the the athletes that have gone overseas and they're going to university programs that have been able to train every single day and have a, a core curriculum of working on the fundamentals and that understand the wheel, hand position, understand the use of trunk, because it really gets down to the detail, the agility and different things that you don't think about or you don't even think that you even should think about it from an able body side of it, of how much just moving your your trunk will matter with your push you know how do you get your hands back up how do you do your what's next those fine details of your body your position you know how do you get your axle in front of your caster of the defense the little the details you don't even see that makes the difference in wheelchair basketball from an able body perspective that's right and from the point of it, just shooting so you you'll have a, a low pointer 
on the wing just inside the three-point line and, and someone go, well, why don't they shoot that? Well, because they can't shoot that because they don't have the strength to shoot that because of their impairment that they have. All those things that just are given, well, that's an open shot. Why would you take that? Or someone gives it to uh, someone under the basket and says, why don't they make a play at that? Well, they can't physically. So it's all those considerations. And it's like the detail of, you know, Jana is a high pointer. Where can Jana shoot the ball? Well, she, she can shoot the ball from just about anywhere. But Darren, if I'm a low pointer, we need to get Darren the ball in certain spots on the floor that we know that he can finish from that area. And the detail and the, the precision that has to go into to get the people to that, there's a lot, there's a lot of detail, isn't there, Jen? Well, that's it, like in terms of figuring out your range. So, And then if they can't shoot it, what can we support them so they can shoot it? You know, Is it getting their chairs moving to create that momentum because you can't generate it from your knees? Is it having a bit of a, a J within your shot to create that momentum in your arm because you don't have it in your legs? How do we set our athletes up to succeed and how do we correct that or help them generate it? What's unique about wheelchair basketball is even though you might not be a shooter out here or you can, you know, our class ones, they need to be hitting layups. How do they get their angle so they can make that layup? They need to be able to shoot from the three throw line, but also they're pretty deadly by getting and working with their teammates. So being able to work on those wheel positions, I think some of the smartest players are there are the class ones, the lower classes, because they have to think about the game and they need to read the offense and read the defense that they need to put their chair in the best position. And those are the ones that are the smartest out there. But if you're not all working together, they can be very smart. And if a big doesn't follow them in to get them into the key, it's not effective. From what I'm hearing, from the point of view of a coach, they're not just reading and trying to respond to the opposition and what the opposition's doing. They've also got to think about how they can position their sets to get the players into the right positions to take advantage of their strengths. It's almost like a chess game. Yeah, but it's understanding the fine detail. You know, you, if uh, you have a big player come and they, they do a dive right at the block and their teammate sits behind them, how they sit behind that screen, you, the, the big person's pinch the two defenders, how the person sits behind and allow the person that dived protects them from the ball. They can sit there. If defense pulls out, and they want to then try to block that shot, then it's a pick and roll and the offensive player gets in the key. But it's understanding where do I sit behind? How do I protect myself from the defense? How do we work together to let's bait them out so we can do a pick and roll? That really fine detail of how do we get ourselves in the best position to shoot? Or, and again, how do we get our best position to defend? You know, how do I keep my bigs on bigs? There's mismatches inside the key. And then there's mismatches with speed on the transition. How do we move a place and hide possibly our weaker player, our weakest threat, or how do we pull out and force their weakest threat to damage us? And you're right. You're looking at the combinations out there. Um, are you playing a defense that you have your bigs on both sides? Or do you you know put two bigs on one side and really double team on their bigs? When you're on offense, you're going up the court. I'm Who's the least threat? As being a big threat out there, I'm just going to hone into there and try to create those mismatches. You know, I want to shoot over, make the class one guard me. Easy. I don't have to worry about them um, deflecting my shot and being smart and thinking about the game. I think, and to add to what Jana said, obviously in able-bodied basketball, you're thinking about those considerations at times, but not in the detail. But in able-bodied basketball, if it doesn't happen, you've got to bail out. So in able-bodied basketball, say, for example, you're setting an on-ball screen, you're looking for a level to switch. There's, 
the mismatches you're looking for. But if it doesn't happen and the shot clock gets low, you just go, get out of the road. Paddy, here's the ball. Go one, four flat. Make a play for us. Yep. You can't <laughs> yeah. do that in wheelchair basketball. There is no way you will ever see the shot clock get down and they throw the ball out the point and go, go one-on-one. That never happens because it's so hard to do. So in able-bodied basketball, there's always a bailout. If something doesn't happen, we can make a play and get a shot off. In wheelchair basketball, if something goes wrong, that's why you need to execute so well to get the shots where you want, when you want. Because you can't just give the ball to someone and you know, say, for example, we can't just give the ball to Amber and say, Amber, go one-on-one, do your best and get a shot up. Because someone could lock it down. And a low pointer could do that. A low pointer could lock Amber down and make Amber shoot over a chair from the three-point line. Those things can happen. So I think that's the big difference between able body and wheelchair. You're thinking about these mismatches, but if you don't get them in able body, you've got a bailout. In wheelchair basketball, you don't have a bailout. Yeah, so to me, you know, one of the keys there is that we've also, not only do we have to have pathways for the players, we actually have to have very well-defined pathways for the coaches to really get to understand the nuances of the game so that they can be as effective as possible in the role as a, of a coach. Definitely. And I think even, and I don't know if this is um, just pathways in terms of players going into the coaching capacity. Um, and then you have the women's sports and, and life demands and things of that sort of being able to have that ability to support post-athletes to stay involved. And then the commitment level is very high too, Paul. Like, you know, because once you get involved in the national program, there's a lot of travel. You know, there's camps down the IS, there's trips away. And 99% of the people that work in wheelchair basketball have to work in another job. So you have to take leave to go to a camp because the camp may start on a on a Wednesday night. And so you've got to take the Thursday, Friday off, fly home on a Sunday. So you, and then if you go away to a, a tournament, then you've got to take a couple of weeks off that you're taking out of your own annual leave. You know, if you're a coach in that, you go, I can't take all my annual leave to go away on this. You know, I've got a family. I've got school holidays coming up. I want to save some of that leave to take the kids away like there's all these considerations where we need a, a big pool of coaches that we can start sharing this so we don't burn coaches out as well. Considerations there, if we've got female coaches that are coming into the program and they've got kids or care or responsibilities, or these, these considerations are being put in place uh, and we're supporting that. Janet's a unique situation. She's so got two young boys, Grant's traveling, they, they're both involved in the program. If we want to keep them both involved in the program, we've got to find solutions to make it easier for them to be able to do what they do. Otherwise, we lose fantastic resources. To me, it's looking like we need effectively three education streams. The one which educates the potential pool of players that, hey, you can get in, you can be involved in this sport, and you can do well at it. And, you know, you don't have to be in a wheelchair. The second stream is one for coaches so that we can develop a pool of coaches who can help take these teams to to the levels that they can achieve. And then there's a third stream, which is almost like having to go out and educate the commercial world to what they can do to support these initiatives. But on top of supporting those initiatives, there's a commercial return for them in that it'll raise the profile of those companies within the wheelchair and disabled community. That's the thing that we need to talk to with the BA commercial department about is that well, what are the advantages? What's your return on investment for being involved with the Gliders program and really selling that? I, you know, like I said, you know, we, we saw the, the huge corporate support that jumped behind the women's AFL group. And I'm sure, like I said, the success of the Gliders programs that they've had in past years, we could generate some support, but someone's got to actively go and look. Yeah, and, and also educate. 
I think there's companies out there who can see the value, but I also think there's a huge pool of commercial organisations that aren't aware of the commercial potentials of being associated with wheelchair basketball. So what do you look for as a business? So if you were to look to invest in something like that, what would you want to see from Basketball Australia to know if this was an investment that you'd like to put your money in? If, if Sorry I was to put you on the spot. No, no, that's all right. If I was looking at it from a commercial standpoint, the things I'd be looking for is exposure. So that means do people get to see the games? That's the first thing I'd be looking for. How actively are the teams promoted within Australia? So like there's promotion done and you've rightly said, you know, you picked out AFLW. There's a significant amount of promotion that went behind AFLW to be able to raise its profile effectively from zero to what it is today. So what are the sporting bodies doing to raise the profile to the wider community? That's the the second thing I'd be looking at. The third thing I'd be looking for is the individuals who are involved in the sport. There's characters. You know, who are the characters that I can get to know through the sport who align with the values of my business, who are providing a message to their community that I agree with, that I would like to associate myself with. They're the things that I'd be looking for from a commercial standpoint in terms of wanting to engage with wheelchair basketball. Do you feel that, you know, from what you've seen, what do you feel of the wheelchair basketball social media presence? It was pretty light on, you know, like on Twitter, I was seeing halftime, full-time score, and, and that was pretty much it. There wasn't a lot coming. And I think there should be more. Again, I'll look back to the Olympics. One of the African teams, the guy who was running their social media, just, it was absolutely legendary stuff. This guy was just getting more and more followers because of the approach that he was taking, which was kind of really lighthearted. It had a little bit of attitude. It wasn't offensive. But, you know, there was thought behind it. There needs to be that sort of engagement because it's a great way to be able to get your message out to a large proportion of people. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there in wheelchairs with disabilities who are watching social media. They're looking at this and they're going, okay, if you don't care about your product, we don't care about your product, we'll go somewhere else. And that's part of the messaging that's got to come along, which is if we're investing effort into this, that means we care about what we've got. Yeah, I think, you know, like I said, in regards to social media presence, I suppose it's hard to compare to different situations. But, for example, the Boomers, they had their own social media person who's with them the whole time and they're actually doing a documentary. So they had a resource just for them. And I understand that their budget compared to where we are and the NBA players and the resources that they have behind them. You know, we look at what we can do from where we are and the limited budget that we have and we need to be more efficient you know, we had an intern, used to get interns when I was at the NFL, used to come in from universities and do like a, a four-month intern. And you'd say, this is what we want you to work on. You're in social media. You're going to look after this program. And when you get someone that finds out, you know, that they used to work on the, the Aboriginal, the multicultural and the inclusion programs that we had. And when you got someone good, the profile of the program would grow immensely. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not comparing Basketball Australia as a media machine to the AFL, which is virtually a television channel. Like That's how big it is and how much resources and money they've got behind it. But we need to find more innovative ways for us to promote our game. And I'm sure there's people out there that would love to contribute to what we do. Yeah, and again, there's a commercial aspect to this. And to me, the commercial aspect is, look, If you are the body responsible for the gliders and you're looking for commercial sponsorship, you need to be able to come to me and give me a reason, right? Because I've got 
all these different people who are asking me for money. And I'm okay. And I'm, I'm good with wanting to contribute, but I need to understand bluntly what's in it for me from a commercial yeah. standpoint. You know, if you can give me a presentation that says, this is how many competitions we go to. Here are the individuals we got. Here's the achievements that they've made. The team itself, these are the medals they've achieved. No, they didn't achieve here and here, but we understand why. These are the reasons why, and these are the steps we're taking to get us back to that meddling position. That's a great story. You know where you've come from. You know where you're going. You've got direction that you can talk to me about. Okay, you know, I'm willing to talk about now how do we engage at a greater level. Yes, commercially they see the benefit of the boomers, but here's the thing. You may not get a major bank. You might get a smaller financial institution that's looking to try and get into sports sponsorship. Look, great example, and Daz, you'd be aware of this, Bryden's Lawyers. Yep. They came in, first sports sponsorship they did was with women's basketball here in Sydney with the Sydney Flames. They're now, you know, sponsoring State of Origin. So, you know, there's a lot of companies with a lot of resources might just want to dip their toe in and try something with, for them, it's a low financial risk and then be able to develop and grow out from there. But to do that, the national bodies need to be able to provide, they've got to be able to provide a really good pitch. I think we've got some really marketable characters in our group, you know, that would love to really set that tone and a social media presence, you know what I mean? And really support, like you're just looking at our group now, it's making me laugh thinking about it, Jana, because you can just look at them and go, she would be fantastic. She would be fantastic. If we put some resources into that, we can do that. And the girls would be up for anything, you know, to really promote the game, obviously. And I think one thing that I've noticed being involved in women's sport over the last 25 years is just seeing how loyal sponsors of women's sport are because when you engage with a women's sporting team, they get down and dirty with the sponsors. So they're the ones shaking hands, they're saying hello, they're meeting their kids, the sponsors can bring their kids to the game, they can get photos, they can get autographs. Female athletes are so much more accessible and genuinely approachable than what male athletes are. You know, female athletes will go out to schools and do promotions for no money, you know, just to promote the game. And I think that's why loyalty, and when sponsors come on board, there's a lot more loyalty to their brand. Players will go out and talk, and they're engaged. They feel part of the family. And that's what women's sport's doing now. I think that's a great benefit. If you're a new sponsor and you want to get in on the ground as a corporate sponsor in sport, women's sport are fantastic because, one, they're more approachable. You'll feel a part of the family. And the issues that arise from women in sport compared to men in sport, like in regards to integrity and quality of character, is a high level. You, know, you don't find many issues in regards to drug issues or you know, you know the list of things that you see <laughs> in men's sport. And I think that's another big selling point that we don't tap into. Yeah, it was interesting. I just was on a talking to the schools earlier today, talk to your three and four-year-olds, talk about Paralympics, talking about, you know, being a potential glider, a roller in the future. But you're right about our athletes and the characters and the values that they have. They're good people. Yep. They're good role models. They're the person that you want your child to look up to. So um, there definitely is a story there. I'd like to come back to this topic, have a discussion about sponsorship and, and so on from the point of view of, Wheelchair basketball has some advantages over traditional sports in terms of its accessibility for potential sponsors because it's a little bit more unique. It's a bit different. Now, yes, potentially a smaller pool of viewers, but it's a more loyal pool of viewers that a corporate can reach out to. So I think there's a whole discussion around this one. 
but obviously if anybody's listening to the podcast and they'd like to open up the wallet if they reach out to us we'll definitely point them in your direction (laughs) (laughs) guys as always it has been great talking to you it's been fantastic following the gliders journey it's been great finding out about what's coming down the pipe for the team as well and this whole really other unscripted discussion that we ended up having, which was really good as well. Thanks so much for your time. I'd love to have you both back so we can talk more about wheelchair basketball in the future. Yeah. Thanks so much, Paul, for um, sharing the gliders, you know, with your podcast. It's been fantastic coming on and and talking and and hopefully some more people will um, get involved due to this podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, both of you, for your time. Like I said, we'll check in and good luck with the team for the future. Thanks, Paul. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.